All right, thank you guys. Good seeing everyone this morning. And I uh, want to again invite you, as Josh has already done, invite you to be back tonight, six o'clock, uh, for uh, communion time together. Always a special time as we gather around the tables, all various ages, and uh, observe this communion event together. And we'll look forward to that. And if you're watching online as a guest, we'd love to have you come and join us as, as well. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 12, just picking up and where we left off a couple of weeks ago in our verse-by-verse exposition of uh, this uh, book, the book of Romans. And as we saw two weeks ago, Paul has ended uh, what is arguably the most theologically rich section uh, that Paul ever penned, this section of Romans, especially uh, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, to the point that by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, Paul has broken out in a hymn of praise, which is very much the way that uh, those verses, verses 33 through 36, are, are identified, that, that it is a hymn of praise, proclaiming and glorifying God for his wonderful wondrous ways, the way that the mercies of God have been uh, manifested and revealed in ways that, that defy human capacity, that that Abrahamic covenant was fulfilled in a way that none of us and no one would have ever uh, anticipated. And yet this is how God has worked. This is how God, the mercies and the grace of God have acted in his salvation history through the person of Jesus, who is certainly the Christ and is recognized as the Christ. But now as we begin chapter chapter 12, coming out of that great hymn of praise, Paul makes it abundantly clear in this next significant chapter, beginning in uh, this next significant section, going from Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, going through chapter 15 and verse 13. In this section, Paul makes it abundantly clear that you and I, as the beneficiaries of God's mercies, those who consider themselves to be followers of Christ, we are to sing a different tune. Because we identify with Christ, because we are his followers, we are to march to the beat of a different drummer. We sing a different tune in our life. In fact, Paul is going to use some 32 imperatives uh, in this section from 12.1 to 15.13. We will probably not consider all of those. But whenever you see the imperative form, this, this is not some kind of, of apostolic suggestion that is just being made. If it's convenient for you, these, these are decrees. These are exhortations. These are imperatives for those of us who would call ourselves followers of Christ. And so everything that Paul says now from 12.1 is a transition. Thus, the little word therefore, un in the Greek, it's translated in most of our Bibles as therefore. Therefore, on the basis of the theological assertions that I've made in the previous 11, uh, 11 chapters, these are the ethical implications based upon everything that God has done. This is now what you must do. Having seen the actions of God, the mercies of God in action, this then is how you must act. This is how you respond as a people of God. And so as Paul begins to describe here in this major section, this next major section, as he uh, begins to describe this tune that we are to sing, 
he lays some foundational verses, and uh, I want us just to deal this morning with verses one and two because these are foundational verses. These really establish what Paul is going to say in the remainder of this section, but it also captures and reflects uh, what Paul has already been saying. If you go back, uh, I've mentioned before that what Paul does in Romans, his gift in writing, uh, his gift in teaching is that he introduces things and then he stacks upon those. He builds upon those so that you and I would acquire a better understanding of what it is he is saying. And in these two verses in particular, in chapter 12, verses one and two, uh, if you remember chapter one, Paul's description of a depraved mind, a corrupted people, uh, then you will recognize some of the language the inferences that Paul is making here in verses one and two. He talks about in chapter one of people who are spiraling downward in their worship of idols and false gods in chapter one in verse 25. He deals with that here in these first two verses. He, he addresses that. He shows the contrast of how it looks different, how we are not a people that are spiraling downward, that are worshiping false gods and false idols. But he talks about a different kind of worship that is to characterize our lives. You'll see references here but that refer back to chapter 1, verse 28. Paul describes minds that are corrupted. And now he talks about minds that are being renewed, being, being, being transformed by the renewing, our lives being transformed by the renewing of our minds, of what this life uh, in Christ, we who are alive spiritually, referring back to Romans chapter six, how that looks different from a people who are dead spiritually. So these are wonderful verses here, foundational verses in verses one and two that help us to understand more clearly this tune that we're supposed to sing as a people of God. This tune is characterized by three things that I see here in, in these two verses. The first thing that characterizes this tune that we are to sing is sacrificial worshiping. Sacrificial worshiping. Paul says, therefore, based upon everything that has been said about what God has done, the activities of God, the actions of God in accomplishing your salvation, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, again, using that familial language that we are together in this journey of faith. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that little preposition, some of your translations may say through the mercies of God, in the mercies of God, uh, by virtue of the mercies of God, based upon what has been revealed to you, based upon what you have experienced in the mercies of God through Christ Jesus. By the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, Paul is drawing from his Jewish background when he uses that word present. It's a technical term that Paul understands from the Old Testament language of that covenant relationship with God. Paul understood from his training dating back to childhood, Paul understood that, that in the Jewish faith tradition that at the appointed time and in the appointed manner and at the appointed place, 
Every faithful Jew would take to the priest, would take to the temple, an animal that would be sacrificed as, uh, that would be sacrificed upon, uh, upon an altar and the blood would cover that altar symbolically as, as a covering of your sins. But what Paul now recognizes as a believer and follower of Christ is that, is that the old sacrificial system is, is no more. That as a believer, that he recognizes that Jesus is, is the sacrificial lamb who came to take away the, the sins of the world. So beware of any manifestation of modern Christianity that wants to take you back to an Old Testament sacrificial system. That is a clear departure from, from the theology of the Apostle Paul who sees in Jesus a once and for all sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And so this sacrifice, even though Paul is, is, is abolishing that form of sacrifice, Paul in no way is getting rid of the principle of sacrifice. In fact, for us as believers, instead of, instead of the offering of dead animals, he says that what? We are to offer ourselves, present ourselves upon the altar of daily living as a living sacrifice. He uses three verbs here to describe the nature of this, this presentation, this sacrifice that we are making, that it, that it is living. Again, reference Romans chapter 6, in particular, I think, verses 11 and 13. As opposed to something that, that is spiritually dead, we are to present upon the altar of daily life this, this sacrifice of our life, our bodies. That is the totality of our being. All that we are, all that who we are, all that I am, I am offering my life, every facet of my life as a living sacrifice upon the altar of the world in which we live, living, holy, second adjective, a holy sacrifice, the recognition that we are a consecrated people. Holy, that, that we are a people that are called out. We are separated. We are a people that are consecrated under the service of God. And then he says this in that third adjective, that it is a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is the kind of sacrifice, this is the kind of worshipful sacrifice that is pleasing to God. And he says, this is your spiritual service of worship. Some translations, my NASB uses the word spiritual, that, which is your spiritual service of worship. Some of your translations may use the word reasonable, rational. This is your reasonable service, your rational service, based upon what God has done for you. And I kind of like that translation a little bit better, the reasonable, rational expression of our service of worship, especially in, light, in the light of what Paul is going to say in, in verse 2 regarding the renewing of the mind. But Paul really sees as a believer and follower of Christ, Paul would see no distinction between the spiritual. For, all, for, for Paul, all of life is spiritually, it, it is all encompassing soul, mind, body, and spirit. It is one. Together. So in Paul's thinking, it is as you have experienced the mercies of God, th this is just reasonable 
This is our spiritual understanding that now that I am a living, holy sacrifice, that I am presenting my life daily as a sacrifice unto him on a daily basis. And my living sacrifice only, only ceases until the day I die. Continual, ongoing. This is your service of worship. Now, don't, don't mishear what Paul is saying. What we're doing here is still important. It's significant. In fact, it's, it's prescribed and mandated in Scripture. Paul would say, uh, or rather the author of Hebrews would say, to, to not forsake the gathering of yourselves together for worship, which has become the tradition of some, nonetheless in this day. It's prescribed in Scripture that we as the people of God, that we are a gathering people. We are a community of people, and, and we come together for the purpose of edification. We come together for the, for the purpose of, of praise and adoration, the experience of worship together. But listen, let's be honest. There's nothing sacrificial about what we're doing right here. This didn't take any great sacrifice on my part to be standing here doing what I'm doing. It's not sacrificial worship when we do what we do here behind stained glass, sitting on a padded pew with an environmentally comfortable setting. There's no great sacrifice involved. The sacrifice, a sacrificial worship, expanding and broadening your understanding of worship, the life we live as being an expression of worship. Now, this is when it gets sacrificial. When you go out into a profane and secular world, and you choose not to blend in with the world, and you choose to live your life as a holy, as a living, holy, consecrated sacrifice to God, knowing that this is what is pleasing and acceptable unto Him. Because listen, even though Paul is writing to a particular audience in Rome 2,000 years ago, these words are no less relevant for us today. Because if your understanding of worship, if, if you have this small, a small definition of worship, a small understanding of worship that is defined as the Jewish people did in their tradition, if you, under, if you have this small understanding of worship as, as being in, in an appointed place, a building, at a at an appointed time, 11 o'clock, and you participate in the appointed rituals, standing, sitting, listening, praying, singing. In, in our culture, we could even add in, in the appointed attire, <laughs> dressing a certain way so that we really look good on the outside while, while we're rotting corpses on the inside. If your understanding of worship is an appointed place at an appointed time doing the appointed rituals, wearing the appointed attire, you're no less guilty than the Jews of Paul's day 
who had a sense of self-righteousness because they did those things. Because they went to an appointed place at an appointed time and they did things in an appointed manner. And in so doing those things, they were self-satisfied. Listen, what we're doing here when we come here, this is no great sacrifice. In fact, in, in the grand definition of worship, man, this is the low-hanging fruit doing this. This is the easy part of worship, coming here. I mean, this literally is the low-hanging fruit in the, defi- in the defining of worship. Now, here's the challenging part. If I struggle to do the easy part, how much can God trust me to do the hard part of worship, sacrificial worship, out there in the profane world, in a secular world? You see how the tune that Paul is challenging us to sing, exhorting us to sing, is vastly different from anything maybe we've experienced and understood before? of how it looks vastly different from other kind of religious expressions that Paul is dealing with in his audience. There's a second thing, second characterization that we see as we continue reading in in verse two, Paul would say regarding this this tune that we're to sing, uh, that it's it's not just sacrificial worshiping, but it's also nonconformist living. He says, and this is the negative, in a negative form, he says, and do not be conformed to this world. Now, the world, that, the, the word world that's translated here is a world, uh, it's a word that means this age, this present age, the spirit of the age, the spirit of the times in which we live. It's an evil age, as Paul would say in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1, it's the evil age from which Christ has delivered us. And so now then Paul is saying in in Romans, listen, don't be conformed to that world. Don't be conformed to this culture. I like the way the British scholar J.B. Phillips expressed this. He says, don't let the world, he translates translates this first clause in in verse 2 this way. He says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Do you ever feel that way? You ever feel like the world's trying to squeeze you? into its mold, that there's competing belief systems out there. There are certain ideologies that our culture is trying to force upon us. Paul says, listen, I expect you to sing to a different tune. Do not be conformed to this world, to the spirit of this present age. You have been delivered from this through Christ Jesus. As you think of it in terms of jello. <laughs> you ever made jello? Well, I know you've made jello before, but you know, you take that powder. Uh, I'd hone up my jello skills here. You got to take the powder, right? And you put it in hot water, warm water, and dissolve it. Then you pour it in a bowl, put it in the fridge. Then you take it out, turn it upside down, put it on a flat surface, and what? It retains the shape of the mold, right? That's, that's, what, that's what Paul is saying. The world has a mold. And it's trying to force you into that mold so that you look like everybody else. 
that there's uniformity in our thought, in our beliefs, and ultimately uniformity in our demise as well as a people. And the weakness of the church for 2,000 years, the weakness of the church throughout its history has been the overwhelming number of jello Christians in her midst who have been molded and fashioned by the culture in which they find themselves. And they have lost that distinctive identity. Thinking of it in terms of two instruments that are used to measure temperature, you have a thermometer and you have a thermostat. A thermometer reflects the temperature. It tells you the temperature of the air. It tells you the temperature of the surface upon, upon which it's found. But, but the thermometer doesn't affect the temperature. Now, all of us have a thermostat in our homes that controls the temperature, right? And even though, even though this, this exhortation, this imperative is in the negative form, do not be conformed to this world, it can have a very positive outcome in our lives when we determine that I'm not going to be conformed to this world. I'm not just going to be something that reflects the culture and the day and time in which I live. But I want to be used to change the temperature of where I'm found. Of wherever I might be, I'm going to be, because I'm, I, because I'm determined not to be conformed to this world, I don't want to reflect the culture. I want to affect the culture where my feet are. So do not be conformed to this world. It's expressed negatively, but it can have a positive outcome in our influence, in our realms of influence. A final quality that Paul alludes to, notice there at the end of, of verse two, when talking about our lives singing to a different tune, not just sacrificial worshiping and nonconformist living, but also transformed thinking. Having said, do not be conformed to this world, he says, but be transformed. Metamorpho, from which we get our word metamorphosis. Most often we hear that word metamorphosis used, used in nature, the process by which a larva becomes a cocoon, becomes a butterfly. That, that's a metamorphosis that has taken place. Same word is used in Matthew's gospel, chapter 17. Uh, in, in the description of, of the transfiguration, that word transfigured, metamorphomai, and the transfiguration, at the Mount of Transfiguration, we know that, that the divine nature of Jesus shined through his ordinariness. It shined through this incarnate flesh. Peter, James, and John were able to see an affirmation of, of who he truly is. God incarnate. And now Paul says, this, this is what is happening in you. When, you. when you follow Christ, when your life sings to a different tune, there is a metamorphosis that is taking place in your life as, as who you are in Christ Jesus is being made manifest outwardly for the world to see. Now, how does this take place? Well, notice Paul says, by the renewing 
of your mind. By means of your practical reason. By means of your, of your moral consciousness. You see, our minds, when we become followers of Christ, it means that our minds are going, uh, our minds are being reshaped. Our minds are being, are being transformed. I come to recognize as a, as a follower of Christ, someone that has known and experienced the mercies of God, that I can't think like everybody else. As one that has been renewed by the Spirit, by, by one who studies the Word of God, I recognize that, that my worldview is being shaped, reshaped, reprogrammed, that I think differently because of this life in the Spirit. And it's a life that doesn't think. It's my thinking as a follower of Christ. My thinking is not like the world's. Listen, church, when it, when it comes to moral, pressing moral, social issues in our world today and in our culture, we have, as the followers of Christ and with the church, as the church, we hold no shared opinions with the world on moral issues. None. We hold no shared values or opinions with the world on moral issues. We don't. Not if you have a historical, grammatical understanding of the text. Now, you can embrace new theologies, theologies that are accommodating Theologies that are based upon reader response, which is a popular interpretive tool today. Reader response just being, well, the text means whatever it means to you in this moment. However you're feeling right now when you read the text, whatever it means to you in your present tense emotional state, that's just what the text means. But if you hold to a historical grammatical understanding of the biblical text and the teachings of the Word of God, then you recognize that we hold no shared opinions, no, held, no shared values with the world when it comes to moral issues. And there are very real ideologies that are out there on moral issues that are, that are seeking to press us into a mold, to force us into a mold of how we think. And the world doesn't portray it. Listen, these ideologies on moral issues, they are not portrayed as that which clashes with the design of God. They're all dressed up as something that, that, that is affirming, something that, that is beautiful and oftentimes presented as even being Christian because, because it's presented in such a loving and winsome way. How could you possibly be against that? Well, because it conflicts with the design of God. It's what Paul was saying back in Romans regarding those that have been given over to a depraved mind, corrupted minds, corrupted thinking. They've exchanged the natural for the unnatural. And they want to make it the new normal. Two weeks ago, I read a story in the Wall Street Journal that's indicative of the times in which we live. It was a young lady, a professing Christian, who was announcing in this, 
uh, was being announced in this editorial piece about uh, she's leaving her church. Oh, I'm still a Christian, but I'm just, I'm just leaving the church. Apparently she attended a church where the, the historical grammatical teachings of the text were, were held forth. And that's what you get here. You, you get a historical, my training, everyone on our staff, in their, in their graduate school studies, we, we have been brought up, we have been trained, we have been educated in the hermeneutical process of grammatical historical understanding of the biblical text. That is a 2,000 year old tradition of how the text is understood and how it has been handed down from generation to generation. It is time tested. My theology and the theology of our, of our pastoral staff, none of us change our theology based upon the last book we read. None of us do that. We don't change our theology based upon what is accommodating to the most people. We, we don't change our theology based upon what is popular. But this young adult, this young lady was going, has announced that she's leaving her church, still loves Jesus. Not abandoning my faith, but I'm leaving this church because what I notice is that, is that the way the word of God was being taught, it put me at odds with my social friends who are not believers and their beliefs on all variety of social issues. And so I'm leaving the church because I don't fit in with my friends and their beliefs. And I never imagined a time when maybe a congregation would have to be told that, that if, you hold, if you hold to the teachings of Scripture from, from a historical grammatical perspective, that to be a follower of Christ means that you're at odds with the culture. And I don't mean in a mean, angry, self-righteous way. You know, I have a great many friends that are unbelievers, but because I have unbelieving friends, I don't change my theology to accommodate them. And even with my unbelieving friends, I'm not self-righteous, I'm not pompous, I'm not mean. You know, I'm not condescending. I'm not mad about it. I just, I just hold on to a, a historical theological understanding of the text. Because Paul says, as, as, we, as we do this, as our mind is renewed, as we are being transformed, that it's in this that you prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect is that which achieves his desired end. But it's not the popular position. It, it doesn't represent the majority. It doesn't fit in with the culture. And we have to let go of this. If we're going to truly be a people who sing to a different, different tune, we've got to let go of this naive idea that somehow I can, I can still hold to some Christian standard in my life and give the appearance of being Christian while holding on to views that better align with the world than they do the word of God. That's the height of naivety, if not foolishness. And so to dance to a different tune requires transformed thinking. 
Because Paul says, that's how you prove the will of God. That's what's good and acceptable. In other words, anything else, any other kind of thinking, it's not the will of God. It's bad and it's flawed. We're called to sing to a different tune. Father, enable us to sing well the song of faith. A faith that may put us in contradiction to our culture. A faith that may put us in conflict at our school, in our workplace, in our social circles. But a song that might be a light. A song that might offer hope in a world that has none. And so, Lord, as we leave this place, might we collectively be a people who sing well in our world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.